All right, so welcome. So this month we're going to explore what's called the three poisons, which is kind of an intense title. The poisons are also called the three defilements or the three kalashas. And these are really pointing toward these kind of deep patterns that create suffering. And we're going to unpack this, this word defilement and poisons in just a moment here. And we're talking about greed, hatred, and delusion. Those are the three defilements, three poisons, three unwholesome roots. And these are really actually very connected to last, uh, the last three, last quarter, last three months around the three characteristics. The three characteristics of dukkha, of uh, Nietzsche, and of anatta, so suffering of impermanence and non-self. Because when we're confused about those aspects, this is the expression, is these roots of greed, hatred, and delusion. They make sense when we don't understand the nature of what causes suffering, what causes the release of that suffering. We tend to act either from a greedful place or a hateful place or a deluded place. Same thing with not understanding the nature of impermanence, of things arising and passing away. Take things as being permanent, uh, which are actually impermanent. There's going to be natural tendency to be a quality of greed around it, quality of, of um, clinging around that. And of course, delusion is perhaps the deepest one that drives all of that, that confusion about how things actually are. So tonight we're going to focus in on greed, and, and I think, we forget how this teaching schedule goes, but this month I'll focus mostly on greed as a, as a place to, to explore. Okay, so right off the bat, though, when we throw out words like defilement and poisons and greed and unwholesome things, I don't know what your mind's like, but my mind's like, whoa, this is, this is kind of a change of pace. And this kind of really puts us right in the middle of Buddhist traditions that there can be kind of a very, uh, some ways harsh way of describing some of these patterns. So I want to address that as we explore all these. Because if we're not careful, we can actually use the teachings as a way to harm ourselves, harm our minds. Oh, God, I'm, I'm upset because I'm being caught in greed, so I get um, hatred toward my own greed, and we just get tighter and tighter. And that's actually counterproductive. Because when we start throwing out these words or start to explore from that perspective, we, we can basically be unwholesome in the way we try to get rid of what's unwholesome. You know, we can use the defilements against themselves, which doesn't really work. It just keeps the thing tighter and tighter. We just find a different way to judge ourselves. Now I have a Buddhist way to judge myself. Well, before I just had my normal way of judging myself. <laughs> and it's a simple thing to say, but it also points to a very deep way that the Dharma is asking us to approach it. Because if we can't use our defilements, we can't use greed and hatred and delusion to get rid of greed and hatred and delusion, how do we do that? How, how can we, because usually when I find something wrong with myself or with my environment, I apply my judgment, my criticism to try to get rid of it, to try to make it better, to change it. But this won't work. I can't use that same strategy to overcome these patterns. So it asks us to step out of that normal perspective, that normal assumptions of how we take 
ourselves to be. So just as we start this process or this exploration these next three months to bring that forth, that we can't use our normal way of comparing, of judging, to try to fix judgment and comparison, for example, or greed. So I have to be willing to kind of shift out of that mode or that perspective that really generates these. And even coming a little bit from that perspective still kind of keeps the knots tied. That being said, as I talked about last talk around the thinning of self, that thinning of, of sense of self, a little bit starts to help. It starts to loosen the momentum of it. It starts to loosen how strong it is. One way to think of it is we have these kind of well-worn neural grooves that we tend to practice again and again. You can think of it as a, a group in, in New Mexico and sometimes in the mountains we have these dry creek beds that were very deep, but there, were, there was no water flowing through them most of the year until the storms came and there would be a big flood going down. Those floods make the, the canal, the, galley, the, the gully deeper and deeper. Right? But a little trickle doesn't do too much. So we're learning how to have a little bit more of a trickle instead of this full-on flow of our, our patterns. Now the good news is mindfulness is really all that we need around it. You know, really a true kind of mindfulness. Remember, mindfulness has this quality of seeing, observing, sensing, perceiving whatever is present, free of our normal comparison, our normal judgment, our normal biases toward it, to actually see it for how it actually is in this moment. There's a steadiness of attention that's inherent in, in mindfulness, but there's also this quality of a, a warm or a kind or a non-violent, really, attention that's inherent in that. When we bring our mindfulness in that quality, when we bring that forward, even as we explore things like greed and hatred and delusion, we can actually start to see in a way that transforms us, that the very way we see it can transform it, or it can also reinforce it for coming from really a different pers- or deeper or unseen perspective of delusion. So observing these, these kalashas, these defilements or poisons from a non-judgmental way allows them to start to be fully seen. That very perspective starts to transform them. However, if we, on the other hand, approach them from a judgmental standpoint, a comparison standpoint, that actually tends to reinforce them. And this is tricky with these kind of words like poison, defilement, unwholesome roots. Our minds just kind of are conditioned toward that, toward comparison, toward judgment, toward friction of what we're seeing. We see it as a problem to overcome. This is the tricky part is that we, it is something to overcome, to see through, but the way we do it is so important because we can't force ourselves to overcome it. We can't force ourselves to, to get through those patterns because like greed, for example, we're going to likely be using hatred to try, try to get rid of it, right? It just doesn't work. And most of us will have to explore that. <laughs> We have to see how it doesn't work. We're going to try to, you know, I'm going to hate this greed away and see how much I, how, how well that works. And many of us will also learn more and more subtle ways 
of releasing that, relaxing into that. So the practice is this kind of gradual way of deepening, of exploring. So when we meet this, this moment, how it's arising, we really clearly see it. You know, you kind of a direct observation that's kind of cleaned up of our normal judgment and comparison. We can actually perceive how things actually are. Now, what we do from that standpoint, that's, this is the other aspect, this interesting juxtaposition of that kind of clear seeing, okay, really a deep acknowledgement of how this moment actually is, and then how do we act from it? What do we do with that moment? It's so much of our practice, we're learning as meditators how to just be, the, be still in the moment, meet the moment just how it is, because that's so often an underdeveloped capacity in our minds and our hearts. We're so conditioned to try to do something with this moment. And in that midst of that doing, we don't realize we're actually seeing more of our reactivity and our judgment than the actual thing itself. Right? So we, that's why we emphasize that so much. And yet, we also have to do something with it. We still have to act in the world. We have to make choices in our world, in, in our lives, in our relationships, in our work. This is this, the volitional impulses or the sankharas come in. This is a technical term, but it's coming from like the dependent origination, the cycle of dependent origination, which is one way of describing this creation of a sense of self. But basically, anytime we have a choice that we make, we choose to make an action, may or may not be so conscious, that tends to reinforce that, that pattern, reinforces that groove. Right? That's like that gully gets deeper each time the water flows through it. Other hand, as we choose different, make different choices, that maybe a different gully or a different pathway starts to open up. So basically it inclines us toward what comes up, how are we going to react in the future? How are we going to act in the future? You know, teachings of karma, of cause and effect. This is, you know, this is a very... If you just look, it's a very obvious thing. If, we, if I condition myself to always behave in a certain way, the next time that circumstance arises, I'm going to tend to act that same way. There's a lot of momentum from my past experience. Right? So practice is learning how to see those choices on more and more subtle ways, have greater pause around it, to actually incline ourselves to act in a way that causes less harm toward ourselves and others. So when we see a moment of greed arising, you know, what do we do with that? How do we work with it? How do we work with it in a skillful way? Do I follow that impulse? Do I just okay, I feel greedy, so I'm going to just go for that? Or do I judge it and say, okay, I shouldn't be greedy. Why am I greedy? Do I try to get rid of the greed? Or do I try to act in a way that's not based in, in greed? You know, other questions arise, like I was thinking about this topic. It's like, how does self-care, self-compassion relate to, to greed? You know, taking care of yourself. It's like the same action can come from a very different place, can it? It can be from a place that's, that's more greedy, for example, or something that's more from wisdom or from compassion. How does this, how does this whole topic of greed have to do with, with pleasure? Enjoying things. Does that mean as, as practitioners we're not allowed to enjoy anything pleasant? That we should just 
sit in a hot room and wear hair shirts and, and, you know, deprive ourselves? Is that, is that the path? Should we feel guilty about enjoying things? You know, all these kind of questions come up for me. Or, you know, sometimes should I go out of my way to experience pain to overcome my, my greedy nature? All these questions we kind of we can look at from a template of these these last the last three months around dukkha, around impermanence, and around self, non-self. So, for example, when you're, you're kind of questioning, okay, am I really in a greedy mode right now? Just ask yourself, where is there suffering? Where is the friction in this moment? Right. So, if you let's say you're enjoying something very pleasurable. And that ends, and you feel a lot of suffering around the fact that it ended. Okay, maybe there is a quality of relating to that experience with a little tightness. You can think of greed. You know, there's a whole spectrum. We can think of it as just that. That I want this not to. I want this pleasure to continue. Is one aspect of that. How are we with with discomfort when things are not going our way? Does that sense of happiness really depend upon things being pretty good? pleasant, the right circumstances, the right people around us, the right environment, is that when we're finally happy? Or do we need to have, can we have a quality of balance or a quality of of peace and ease that is independent of the circumstances that we're around? So the more that we're dependent upon the pleasures of life to be happy, it's likely to have some quality of greed going on that. And permanence is another great window to look at. How are we with when things change? Let's say we're experiencing something unpleasant and we just can't wait for something more pleasant to happen. We can feel how there's that strong movement towards something pleasurable. Often greed is part of that. You know, as meditators, as our, our life teaches us, we start to be able to be more balanced. Okay, this is a, a moment that's not my preference. It has some pain in it, but I can open to it. I can relax in it a little bit more than I used to be able to. And that's a diminishing of some of these deeper roots. And how am I with the greed, with the pleasure that ends? You know, can I, am I longing for that? Again, that's the, the greedy mind that's coming up. And one of the biggest ones is how does this reinforce that sense of self, that sense of isolation, that sense of, of contracted self? Now, self that's a whole topic that we can have sp- spoken for about for talks on their own or even for months at a time. But the sense of self is interesting from a human being perspective. We're born and we don't really have a sense of self. There's no separation between us and our mothers. You know, there's that deep connection. You know, if, if we were lucky enough to have a, a caring parent, which isn't always the case. But there's that, that sense of, of non-separation. And then for us to become a healthy adult, we have to learn that individualization, how to become separate, how to say, this is, this is me, I have different opinions than my child, than my parent, I should say. And then eventually, we hopefully, and we, we figure out how we're going to be in the world, who we are in the world, hopefully we develop a sense, a healthy sense of self. And then we start to interject practice into that, Dharma practice. We start to see how that sense of self actually can be best used as a, really as a tool, as a a role that we step into. 
but we realize that that doesn't define the truth of what I am. The truth of what I am is really transcends any particular sense of self that arises. When I say that sense of self, because it's always arising and passing away, moment after moment. You may not perceive that. We think it's always continuous. Even if you reflect back on your life, there's times when you were living with your parents or you were going to school or doing your first job or first relationships, different roles. All those had different senses of selves that manifested. And when those changed, a different sense of self arose. We connect the dots, but we don't see that there's actually falling back into something that's much stiller, much more vast. So back to the greed as a delusion, as one of these, um, not as a delusion, but as one of these, these poisons of the mind or unwholesome roots. Greed is one of our most powerful, one of the powerful ways to create that sense of self, right? When you're really wanting something, you really know who you are. You know the lack that's, that's there that you're trying to fill. You have this idea of the happiness you hope that object, that relationship, that person, that experience, that role will fulfill. Right? That sense of, of self is really enhanced by that, that greed. That's ultimately what our practice starts to open to is noticing, attuning to that. Am I creating a stronger sense of self in a way that isolates, that creates suffering? Or is that starting to soften? Is that starting to thin? become less, less prevalent. So how can we work with greed? Now greed, I think many of us, when we first start to practice, we, we say, okay, I'm going to use my normal strategies and my normal willpower to overcome this. You know, I've tried, tried to do this with different you know, things I find, you know, grateful patterns like sugar, for example, and just, okay, I'm going to abstain and not do it. And there's this kind of will that's around it. That's why I wanted to read that poem by Kabir. Because it's, from a Dharma perspective, it's really not about willpower. It's not about repression or denial. It's about clearly seeing. That clear seeing is what transforms us, transforms these patterns. So in some ways, it's, it's much easier than we think it's going to be. All we have to be willing to do is see something very clearly. And that in itself transforms us. So just to read that poem again from Kabir. Friend, please tell me what I can do about this world I hold to and keep spinning out. I gave up sewn clothes and wore a robe. I noticed one day the cloth was well woven. So I brought some, bought some burlap, but I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. I pull back my sexual longings, and now I discover that I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice that I am greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I am proud of myself. When the mind wants to break its link with the world, it still holds on to one thing. Kabir says, listen, my friend, there are very few that find the path. So this is that thing I talked about at the very beginning, that we, if we're not 
noticing our attitude, we're often going to be applying to greed, for example, hatred. We're going to try to use our hatred to overcome it. Or we're going to use hatred to overcome delusion. You know, so noticing that, that deeper attitude, and, and because otherwise we're just going to be, be like switching. It's like a, I, this is here, and the next thing, this is here. I'm going to just keep shifting like this poem said from one pattern to another as it finds a different way to express itself. Now, Kabir says there's very few that find the path because it really asks us to step outside of our normal pattern, normal perspective in a very profound and deep way. And it's a way that we've been practicing the first time you learned how to, to practice mindfulness. Is we, you know, we don't say, okay, sit still, and whenever you find a thought arises, judge it all as much as you can. Every time you get lost in thought, get really tight about it because you really failed and come back again. You know, jank yourself back. That's how we actually practice, <laughs> many of us. That's how I practiced when I started. But we, we try to induce that softness, that quality of, okay, because the more we can realize it doesn't matter what's arising in this moment. It really doesn't matter. It's can we meet it? Can we open to it? Kind of your quality of, of, of seeing it clearly, sensing it clearly. That's what mindfulness is about. And we start to learn that through our bodies, through our breaths, through our emotions, our thoughts. And we start to get that, then that's, that's really all that we need for this practice. And we can use what I like to think of as a directed mindfulness, a mindfulness that is almost seeking where the, the restriction is or where the friction is. I think of this as a way of describing investigation or inquiry. Right? So that directed mindfulness, that turning toward where is the cause of this struggle, of this suffering in this moment? Where does it lie? What's the nature of it? So as the, as the homework talks about, we'll go over that in a, in a little bit, is start to notice when a greedy pattern arises, when, a, when you find yourself relating to the moment from a greedy place. First thing is to kind of step back and notice what your attitude is to seeing that. Right? So usually, before we practice, we, before you learn to practice, we would just follow that greedy pattern. Right? The greed is, okay, I'm just going to follow it. And we start to notice, oh, well, maybe this is part of what's causing some of this, this struggle in my life. I want to start to notice it. I want to observe it. As soon as you turn to that point, you have to really step back and notice, how am I relating to the greed in this moment? What's my relationship to it? Is that, is that the attitude of, of kindness, of um, compassion? Mindfulness and compassion. Because compassion is realizing that underneath the greed, there's often some pain underneath that's not seen, that's not understood. So we're learning how to meet the greed itself without hatred, without aversion, and without delusion, without getting kind of checked out and confused around it, to have a clarity of seeing, a clarity of knowing. So what is this really like, this experience of greed? Not in an abstract way, but right here in this moment of greed, what is that like as a body experience? Can you actually describe it? Can you actually point to it? 
you know, that, that sense of, of tension, that sense of contraction, that sense of anticipation. The body is echoing all of those. The body is expressing all of those. Can we sense that? Can we open to that experience? What's the mind doing? What's the experience of the mind in relationship to, to greed? You know, that sometimes there, you know, for me there's a narrowing down like everything else falls away except that one thing I'm really wanting in the moment. You know, the impulse to act, to follow it. You know, what does the heart feel like? You know, if you really tune into it, you can feel like the heart is really kind of tight. It's contracted in this moment. So none of this is about judging the greed, but actually noticing what it's like. What's it like to find, to want something from a greedy perspective? This process of investigation, when we hear that word, sometimes we think it's more of this mental process, more intellectual. But it's really much more of a kind of an inside-out process. I often think of it as I'm kind of poising questions or I'm throwing inquiries out. Like, okay, what is it like to feel this greed as a body experience? And then I just shut my mind off or I stop talking or stop thinking and listen or sense. It's like the question is posed and you let the information arise of its own accord. Like right now, as we're sitting, if I said, what's the temperature in the room? Or you can look, oh, I'm going to look at the thermometer, I'm going to look at my watch. Or I can actually just sense into it. I can sense into that. Kind of, it's very amorphous, the quality of what the temperature is. You know, there's a feeling in different parts of the body. Some parts are warmer, some parts are cooler. There's a part of it maybe that's comfortable part of it that's uncomfortable. All of this starts to arise when we turn our attention to the actual direct experience of this, this thing called heat, heat in the room. And same quality with, with greed. What's this really like in this moment? So we're not thinking about it, but we're actually letting ourselves see and experience it. This is such a, an important difference between thinking our way through our practice versus letting our practice reveal itself. Right? So I can describe something like, what's it like to go swimming? Let's say you've never been in the water before. And I describe, okay, it feels like this. It feels like, you know, it's cool. It's, there's this pressure. There's this sense of buoyancy. But when you actually go in the water, that's a very different experience, isn't it, than, you, than anything you could read about or understand or hear about. But when you really experience it, that's your direct knowing of it. That's what we're trying to learn as meditators is to have that direct knowing of this experience. That direct knowing has a transformational power, especially in relationship to things like greed, hatred, and delusion, especially in things like what causes suffering, what causes the release of that suffering. Because when you see it for yourself in your own direct experience, no one can take that away from you. It starts to transform you. Now, an essential aspect of this is to kind of slow down the impulse to act, to do something with. Because greed, hatred, delusion, particularly these first two, 
tend to have a way of driving us into action, actually doing something with this moment, right? So agreed, okay, I really want that. I'm going to reach out for it. I'm going to drive around town looking for it. I'm going to go online and try to find the best deal for it, right? That's all this action of movement, right? Everything closes down except for that one thing. Now, if we stay in a strong relationship to the object of attention, we're really locked into that action, locked into that whole pattern. It doesn't matter if it's an action of our minds, of our bodies, of our, of our, of our speech. So a key piece of this is to actually kind of suspend the action, to actually pause that, or at least slow it down. Like, you know, you can watch a video on YouTube, and you can watch it at full speed, or you can drop it down to half speed or quarter speed, and you can start to see things go in a slow motion. Or sometimes in, mo- in movies where someone has some kind of supernatural power and able to slow everything down, but they kind of stay regular speed. They're having a dialogue or what's going on, or the person is going, whoa, you know, really slow. We do a little bit of that with our practice, is that we say, okay, let's slow down that pattern. There's the impulse to move, to act with it. So when we start to be able to do this, a lot of information starts to come our way. Well, if we keep acting from it, then it just, we don't see it so clearly. So here's an example to kind of make it concrete from my own practice. I was sitting as a yogi in, in a hall, you know, listening to a Dharma talk or was meditating. And there's someone sitting nearby me that I found attractive, right? So right there, there's that attraction and there's this other person. So the impulse is, of course, to kind of indulge in that attraction, whether you're, you know, looking at the person or fantasizing about them or whatever it might be. All that kind of, that's kind of our normal way of relating to greed. When I said, okay, I'm practicing, I might as well practice with this. So what I did is I kind of almost ignored the person. I didn't look at that person. Instead, I noticed what's that impulse to want to look? What's that impulse to want, feel like? Feeling it as a body experience. As I started to feel that, it's like, wow, there's, there's an uncomfortableness to it. I could see how I would want to alleviate that uncomfortableness by trying to indulge in that pattern. But as I started to quiet that down and notice that, okay, where does it feel as a body experience? What's the, the, the attitude of mind? What's the beliefs around it? What's the, the thing that I hope to get from that? That thing I'm wanting. And as I did that, I started to notice, well, there's kind of an underlying lack, something insufficient that I'm trying to fulfill by following this pattern of greed. And I started to say, what does that inadequacy feel like, that sense of lack? What, is, what does that feel like as a body experience? Kind of open to that in the same way of not judging it, not trying to change it, but just to try to understand it in the moment. As I did that, I started to feel this, this lack in a deeper way, in a more clear way. And I realized, there's this moment and I realized, wow, this, this lack is not going to be filled by anything I'm seeking out there. It's like something I'm carrying inside of me, this deeper belief that's really futile to try to fill it from these external experiences. And when I saw that, there's a quality of just letting go. It just became not a, a willpower to try to stop it, but simply that place of wisdom. 
So pausing, pausing, kind of interrupting or kind of, kind of almost suspending the object of the greed, the person, thing, role, experience, whatever it is, and noticing the actual experience of it, that starts to give this, this capacity to start to notice it. Now, but that being said, you know, it, it does kind of turn up the volume on it, right? Because we're so used to using the, the following of the greed as a way to kind of alleviate that pressure. I was thinking this analogy, like if you've ever done archery, you take a bow, you pull it back, you're aiming at a target, and you release the arrow, and it hopefully hits the target. It's almost like you take the bow back, and you take the arrow out of it. And even stop aiming at any particular thing. And you just feel what it feels like to have that bow pulled back, you know, the impulse to want to move. Right? That's often what it feels like, that impulse to want to move in the midst of that. So this can be very strong. It can, at least it can feel very strong in the moment. Like, almost like your life depends upon having that ice cream cone or that chocolate. Have you ever felt that? Like, I just, something really bad is going to happen if I don't have this. <laughs> and yet if we can pause with this, like, okay, so that's what I mean, it's going to get more intense if you're, if you're suspending it. But if you're able to be present with that, mindful of it, compassionate with it, it starts to unhook itself. It starts to release itself. And then we start to have a lot more freedom of whether we're going to follow those, 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 actions of craving or we have a choice of whether we can you know maybe today i will take care of myself or i'm going to you know give myself a treat or whatever it might be but it's done from a much clearer headed way so we start to to do this kind of a process of investigation the same, once you open to these deeper levels of, of lack, of, of insufficiency, the same process is there. Can I see it in a clear way, non-judgmental way, not trying to change it, but just try to understand it, try to open to it. And don't expect that, you know, tomorrow's meditation, you're going to solve all the greed in your whole life. <laughs> it's much more of a process. And the good news is that as you start to work with it, it becomes easier and easier. You start to know your way through it. And also you don't get tricked so much by, by these, these patterns. And finally, one of my, my favorite ways, my favorite guideposts of when we're trying to figure out how I should act in the moment just to get to know your own habits of mind, your own habits of, of your body, and how, how those show up. So not talking about all those healthy habits that you have, but those kind of neurotic habits or those unconscious habits, those patterns that just you just you find yourself following that. Now, I talked about this a few weeks ago, just that for a while I had this habit. After a retreat, after like a weekend retreat, I would crave something sweet. So I'd stop and get something sweet. I thought, okay, that's no big deal. But then I started to notice how that conditioned my mind. Okay, it's about 4.30, time for something sweet. So the mind would kind of be conditioned to seek that, to look for that. And that pattern just started to, to, to rule me instead of it being a choice. So we start to notice our habits, and this is part of the homework this week, is to notice your habits around, around greed. And those habits are really interesting when we look at how they, what they do to us, because they help us 
they're usually, some of these habits, not all of them, but some of them have been really integrated into that landscape of that sense of me, of who I take myself to be. It's like their, their way of reinforcing that pattern, especially the habits which are a little un- unconscious. Those often are habits that we just, we just follow. It could be as simple as, you know, the inner class when I ask if there's any questions, like you never raise your hand. Maybe that's a habit, like, okay, I'm, I kind of come up against my shyness or my introversion. I don't want to confront that. Okay? It's easier to stay in that familiar than what's known. You can just see that familiar, that what's known, kind of your, what feels like, okay, that's, I know that. That is also embedded in what creates that, that really helps reinforce that sense of you. Right? So with greed, a pattern like greed, like we're exploring this month, notice those patterns and see what would happen if I did opposite of those. You know, that, let's say there's that, I really like those cookies at the end of whatever the retreat or whatever it is, and I want to have them all for myself. What does it feel like to share them? To share it with someone else? What's that do to you? Often you'll notice that there is a quality of not being quite so defined or unsure. There's unfamiliar ground. There's perhaps a sense of trepidation because you're not sure who you are when you're not following that pattern. That's actually a good thing to pay attention to, to play with that. What's it like to go outside of my, my comfort zone, my normal way of being? And realizing from a dharmic perspective, you're starting to develop this fluidity of meeting the moment. When we're really locked in that sense of self, we don't have a lot of fluidity. This is how I am. I can't change. And when that's threatened, I feel more suffering. When it's praised, I feel you know, happiness. But when that's blamed, then I feel more suffering. But we realize that sense of self is actually an illusion, a, a relative reality that we can adopt and let go of. And there's a tremendous fluidity and ease that starts to arise in our life. And greed, exploring greed, if you do it again from a place of wisdom and compassion instead of self-judgment, can be a tremendous way of, of learning about that. It can be a gateway into in the Dharma in a very deep way. All right, let's just sit quietly for a couple moments, letting those words settle. Now, before we open to any questions or sharing you might have, just talk about the homework. So online, hopefully you're able to to get that. I put it in the chat. And then here in the room, there's some hard copy paper, paper copies. So investigation into greed. So as we start to explore the defilement of greed, so again, defilement, poisons, all those things, just notice what that brings up for you and see if you can find a way I'm still relating to it more skillfully. Notice the attitude you're bringing. Are you trying to eradicate greed or understand it? Are you relating to greed from hatred or from wisdom and compassion? So noticing what your natural tendency is. That is observing that itself starts to transform that. Choose one of your habits around greed and meet it with mindfulness and investigation to understand its nature more fully, more clearly. So just pick one of those little habits, something that's fairly benign, fairly easy, 
Don't go with the idea, I'm going to get rid of this habit. You know, look at the attitude, see if I can understand it. See if you can bring a quality of wisdom to it, investigation, to see what it's like as a body experience. What's it like as a mind experience, a heart experience? And then experiment with doing opposite of what that of that habit's impulse, and notice what arises. Right. So I'm giving you some some opportunities or some suggestions to to learn about your own own patterns, because each one of us has our perfect spiritual journey, perfect guidebook. It's called our lives. It's just it's right there. All right. So I have a chance for any questions or sharing you might have both in person or online. In person, if you raise your hand, we can have you come over here and we can let the online people hear you. And online, you can just raise your your virtual hand. Yes, come on up. It's over there today. Okay. Um, For me as well as for much of the world, what came up for greed was definitely food and pastry habit, to be exact. Um, And so when I tried to query this and kind of understand and gain insight into this, um, I immediately come up against this inner three-year-old who just says, you can't make me. (laughs) I can have the pastry. (laughs) So uh, that kind of stumped my process of insight. And then listening to you talk, uh, it was helpful to understand that I'm probably going at it it, with a whole lot of, you know, negative emotion, probably. Yes, that's right. But, I mean, my question is, how do you kind of, you know, you said, okay, well, you should soften it. How do you go about it when there's this inner wall? Yes, that's a great question. So how do you go about this, you know, working with greed on like something like a, a pastry and when the inner two-year-old says, no, you're not going <laughs> to, you can't tell me what to do. I want it now. <laughs> All right. So a nice way to play with it, like let's, let's do like a pastry. Like that's a great, great concrete thing to focus on. Get a pastry and just put it in front of you. And when that, that little voice and that little the inner child says, okay, I want it now. Just say, yeah, you will, but we, you know, we're going to wait for a little bit. We're going to set a timer for five minutes, right? From five minutes, you can eat it as fast as you want, <laughs> however you want to eat it. Okay, put the timer on and then take that moment to really, okay, let me notice this whole relationship to this, right? So again, you're not denying yourself. You're not saying you can't ever. It's more about understanding it. And that's, that's what I meant by slowing it down. Right. So instead of just eating, 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 it's more like, okay, let me just actually experience that. And then when you, after the five minutes is up and you've just been reflecting on your relationship to it and noticing the experience again, without any judgment, just noticing what's it like. Then, you know, take that first taste and maybe the first five tastes, just try to really be present for those and notice how that affects that quality of wanting and longing and just, and be aware of that. I think often we use proxies. You know, we look for some sense of, of, of pleasure or enjoyment in a way of, of trying to address a deeper pain. I think Janine Roth, one of her books was Feeding the Hungry Heart. And I love that that title that, you know, we're, we have this hunger in our hearts or this sense of, of 
something that just is not fulfilled and we turn toward food, which is, you know, food is, is engineered to try to, hey, this is a great substitute for your longing and, and whatever it is. And so understanding, just understanding it, you know, so it's not about changing, you know, from a dharmic perspective, we're not trying to change your behavior, just try to understand it. Does that help? All right, so I think it was either Lillian or Nikhil. Um, yeah, I was curious if you could clarify a little bit the distinction between uh, greed and craving. And is there, you know, as we're trying to identify kind of instances of this in our life, is there a is there some sort of subtlety between them that we should be looking for that kind of defines one versus the other, or kind of how do they interrelate? Um, is kind of what I'm curious about. Sure, that's a great question. There's a lot of, I think, overlap and common ground between those two, greed and um, craving. You know, from a, a craving standpoint, that's that kind of narrows down to a more technical way of us relating to this moment's experience that kind of ties into that dependent origination, that selfing process, because we have something pleasant then we tend to want, we tend to crave it, we tend to move toward it, and then we start to cling and becomes tight around that, and that kind of gives birth to this sense of self who really needs that and relate, wants that thing in relationship to who we are. Right, so that's kind of that real kind of narrow technical standpoint. Well, I think I would think of greed as kind of this much bigger, almost like we've kind of been born into this kind of greedy sense of self in that moment. That our whole world is kind of revolved around that that thing of greed, that thing we want, and there's all the things we're trying to do to get more of it, or protect it, or hide our greed, or all these things. It's kind of a big. It's a much bigger pattern is the way I think of it. But both of them are really also, you know, really driven by delusion is that craving is kind of a smaller taste of it. It's kind of a, almost like this moment by moment relationship to it. It's almost that inclination while greed is kind of, okay, I'm, I'm really in the midst of that. So I think you can say craving will lead to this greedy, if you can say rebirth or reincarnation of this greedy mind that really wants in that moment. Okay, cool. So it's almost just a distinction of magnitude. It sounds like like craving is maybe the the initial. Uh, maybe you find instances of craving within your life, but greed is kind of that craving at a larger scale. Yes. Yeah. We can think of it as a terms of magnitude. You can also think of it in terms of. Um, how big its field of influence is. It's almost like you could have a, let's say an avalanche, snow avalanche. You have just like the very beginning of it is just this little trickle of snow. You get down to the valley, you've got, you know, cubic feet of snow just going everywhere, tearing up trees, doing all this this stuff. It takes on this huge life of its own that kind of self-generates. Our craving itself doesn't have a whole lot of momentum at that point. It's just like this very beginning of wanting. And that's well, it's an easier way to work with it at that level than being in the midst of of seeking after and 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 uh, all the stuff that goes with that. Cool. Thanks. You bet. Thanks. Who else has any any questions back here in the room? 
que acaba. I, uh, I've always hated that poem that you read. <laughs> and That's next month, the hatred part. <laughs> <laughs> and I heard it really differently after your talk. Mm. Because the friend in the beginning is describing with a lot of insight, really, a, a loop that he or she is in. And I used to hear Kabir, well, he's of course talking to himself, saying something like, well, the path isn't for everybody which felt very like kind of like a smack. Mm. And this time I heard it as a, um, a real kindness and mm. compassion. Yeah. And um, saying, you know, look, look what you're seeing. It's not everything. You know, like you gave a lot of insight into what else we, you know, get out of our heads, notice, sense into it, inquire. But uh, it was just very generous. Yeah. So thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, that poem, I think, is, you know, when I read it, yeah, certainly there's that, that kindness around it. There's that, that sense of, of compassion. And there's also this aspect of wise failure that I think is kind of underappreciated in our culture. You know, in some cultures, failure is seen and struggle is actually seen as something that we we grow from, that we can actually learn from. And I think in our culture, we often have this idea that if you can't do it right, right from the beginning, you know, give up. You know, we see these these athletes and these artists, and you say, wow, they're so amazing. But you don't see all the work that came into that that moment, that 10 seconds on the track, you know, track field, or this moment of brilliance. There's all this background struggle and failures that happen. It's the same thing with our practice. Like those of us who who journeyed with the, the ox herding pictures, that's so embedded in that that those those teachings of like, you know, you're gonna have this perspective that it's gonna fail. And it's almost as human beings that we need to fail in things in order, order to learn. And so you know with this poem is like, okay, I wanna give up sewn clothes and I wore a robe, you know, to be more holy and yet I'm you know flowing you know throwing it elegantly or I have I have fine cloths so I do burlap and then I throw it elegantly and I try to get rid of my my anger and then I my sexual longings and I'm angry and there's just these it's like everything I try there's something else that comes up and it's really this this poem at least the way I'm holding it right now in this moment and there's many ways to hold it of course is around that failure. That's like, okay, every, everything you're trying to do from that perspective is going to fail eventually. And that's really, there's a lot of wisdom in that. And that's how the Dharma often teaches us. We, we try so many different ways and we keep failing, keep failing, keep failing. And hopefully we realize, oh, maybe it's the very perspective. That's the problem. I've been trying to change all these different circumstances, these different things in myself and realizing it's that much deeper perspective. That's what I was trying to talk at the very beginning about is that if we're not careful, we're going to use hatred to get rid of greed or greed to get rid of hatred. But the Buddha is really speaking toward, let me see what Bob said here. Okay, so I'll get back to that in a second, Bob, just making sure there wasn't any 
you can't hear you <laughs> question. It's really that is that that almost radical shift of perspective. And that's what the Dharma is designed to do. That's really what our meditation is designed to do. Have you ever noticed like when you sit and at the end of the sitting, the bell rings and you open your eyes and the, the world feels a little different and you feel a little different in relationship to it. You're not so like solid and defined like you might be when you're really angry or, or caught in, in greed. That's really radical that you're less defined in that moment. Most of us spend our whole lives just trying to make ourselves more and more solid until we get to our deathbed and realize, oh, this whole strategy is going to end. That's going to be a crisis in that moment. But to realize earlier on that, wow, this, all these things I cling to, all the things I take as me and mine are actually just rising and passing away. So this is what this poem for me speaks to, is that, that the wisdom of failing, of falling down on our faces again and again until we find, okay, what is it? What's, the other, what's another way? What has to let go? All right, so I keep seeing hands pop up and go online. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry, is it Rish, Rishaba? I'm sorry, you're not. Yeah, Rishaba. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, thanks for uh, the in-depth explanation of this. I have a slightly tangential question, but it could be related. I haven't fully explored so thinking more from a meta level why greed hatred and delusion even arise think like what objective are they really trying to satisfy for us and i guess and the the secondary question really is does it even help to think in a more meta level in this situation uh Yes. So, and when you're saying meta, you mean like a big, big perspective versus meta, like loving kindness, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> we have to we have to watch our jargon how they collide with <laughs> different yeah. different words. Yes. Yeah, so that that meta, like, yeah, that's a great question. Is like, what? Why do I keep doing this? You know, why is greed and hatred and delusion such a big piece of you know what's the underlying for, focus of that? Now that that question is um, goes down to a very very deep point that the process I talked about in the talk can lead us to if we follow that. So we just kind of start with something like greed and we follow it down, you know, noticing the impulses to act from it to do something with and don't not following that in the time for the time being, but actually experience it. If we follow that deep and d- deeper and deeper enough, we'll get to this point where we realize. The bottom line is that I just want to be, I want to exist. I want to have a sense of, of meanness, of I-ness, that ego wants to still stay intact. And one way we can look at all this is really the defense against that falling away of that ego, the dying of the ego, the dying of that sense of self. Because then who and what we are is unknown, is undefined. Okay, so the other side of it is this the realization that there's this vastness of being, this vastness of self, of the big self, the capital S self, that realizes the, in the truth of interconnection, not as an intellectual idea, but as the reality of that. And there's a part of us that just wants to defend against that, wants to be formed, wants to reform. That's 
the second noble truth, the hunger to be, the hunger to not be. That's that deep quality of tanha, of thirst to become or not become. And so that's kind of the, the, the big level of, of all that is. So it's almost, when I hear you ask that question, it's almost like going into the almost the microscopic level, seeing that on a microscopic level, then it comes back to the big meta level, the big picture level. And that all, it all makes sense. You realize all this display is comes down to that, that very simple illusion of, of self. Yeah, I think that does help thing, uh, because I guess, I mean, I've been struggled with that. I think that why is there a need to even exist? I guess I mean of the ego, because yeah. it's okay to uh, see things as they are. There doesn't have to be a person to. That's right. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, again, I, maybe with practice, it will kind of make more sense. I think. Yeah. It's, it's one that it's one that it's, it's hard to, kind of think your way through it. It's really a direct experience. And we've talked about that different ways. It's like, okay, that sense of you seems solid. Where is it? Is it as solid as you think it is? And, you know, for a long time, we look at it and try to see it and sense it and say, okay, I think I know it is, but I'm watching it. So something else must be the sense of self who's watching the sense of self. And it just gets more and more subtle. Until at some point, something lets go, like the, the failure realize, well, something shifts mm-hmm. and a sense of self falls away. Mm-hmm. So from the sense, it's almost like you have this dividing line. From the sense of self perspective, the ego perspective, mm-hmm. none of this makes any sense. Why would I do any of this? <laughs> and yet from the other side, it makes, it's like, why would you not do this? It makes complete sense because that's the only, you know, way of through of all our, our pain, our, our struggle. We still have the human pain, physical body pain, emotional pain, but it doesn't contract to that sense of self. So it's it's this interesting paradox of the, the spiritual path, at least the way it's kind of unfolded in some traditions. Yeah, that's very helpful. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Thank you for your question. Okay, to go back to Bob's question. So um, what I have here, I got, it's like it's number 38, and the source is the Kabir book, 40, 44 of the ascetic poems of Kabir, and versions by Robert Bly. So if you typed in 78 Kabir, Kabir book, you probably would find it. All right, great questions. Anyone else like to ask or share anything? Anyone back here in line, in person? Yes, Deb, come on up. I was wondering uh, about greed in the sense of getting my own way and being greedy about that Mm. and where it overlaps with the ideas of anatta, the sense of self. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm sure that there's connections, but I was thinking today, I was just noticing today, uh, you know, here in in Seattle we recycle stuff and when you put things out of the bin, it needs to be clean. Well, define clean. Um, my husband put in a jar of a recycled jar of peanut butter. Well, I didn't think it was clean because there were smudges of peanut butter, and I knew that it wasn't clean. And so I thought, should I take this jar of peanut butter out and wash it again 
to make sure that it's really clean, you know, to get my way. To, so it's my definition of clean. Right. And in the past, I actually have done that, and we've had a little discussion about that or two when I was caught uh, doing it. Um, now, I know that doesn't happen to anybody else around here, but... Um, uh, and so I was thinking, oh, isn't that interesting that I noticed that, that I wanted my own way about that, about this jar of peanut butter, and whose definition was the right, you know, the right way to do it. So, uh, you know, I often think about greed in terms of things that we've mentioned here, like food commonly and other things like that. But what about my will? Mm. And I want, I want it the way I want it. I want that pillow in that chair in the living room. It doesn't belong over there. It belongs here. You know, and I can feel the rigidity, of course. That's right. Right, right. But it still comes, it still just rises up all the time, actually. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, it's a real life example of, of how this manifests, how it shows up in our, in our lives. And I think, you know, I tend not to be too caught up in, you know, what's greed and what's craving, what's this and that, but it's more that almost the, the bigger energy of that. And you can feel the effects of that. You, know, you described that really clearly, Deb, that sense of contraction. I, you know, it really matters to me that this is done right or this is in the right place, the pillow or whatever it is. I think we, we all have countless examples of that. And so, and you can also feel in the midst of that, you know, the, the, the storyline is if everyone complied with you, you would feel happy, right? There would be nothing else to worry about in the world. <laughs> if Deb was the, the ruler of everyone and we all followed her rules. And that's kind of the, the illusion of, you know, the, of that state. But of course, you will find something else, right? That's that Kabir poem. Okay, I'm going to find, okay, Peter Better is good now, but not the mayonnaise. Okay, let's go to the mayonnaise or whatever, the olive oil jar that, you know, that needs to really be. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. But so you have to. <laughs> so, you know, and again, there's nothing wrong with trying to um, to to live life in a in a more skillful way. But it's that contraction. That's the part that, you know, it caught your interest. Right. Oh, what's that contraction about? So play with it, you know, play with how to explore it. So here's a, a relational way to play with it, as you talked about. Because it, it often does have a certain grip that it's like we're really convinced that we're right, right? This is the right way to do it. I've talked in the past about when I, I get feedback from my, my loved ones around my behavior, <laughs> right? Because I tend to be a little tight and controlling. I have, this is the right way to do things. And I would notice this with um, like going on a family vacation that sometimes I would just get really tight. Like we have to leave right now. And they're, of course, not quite ready and and we would start this time to be together as a family come this kind of contracted place. And I said, tell me about what that's like for you. You know, and as I listened to my daughter and my wife explain the impact of my actions, that sobered me up around that behavior. It gave me more motivation to look at it, to explore it. So like you could talk to your husband, what's it like when you find me cleaning out your... <laughs> your Correcting your peanut butter recycling, you know, and just listen, you know, and that's, that's this beautiful, you know, way of doing this because sometimes in our own minds, we're in this kind of closed feedback loop 
and we have someone that we, we love and care about, we can actually hear our impact of that. And that, that's this, that, that's bringing, if we have greed, hatred, and delusion, this is bringing wisdom into it. It's bringing compassion into that same pattern, into understanding it. And sometimes we do need that extra energy to be able to kind of break through. Because I think we'll talk about this more in delusion, perhaps, that delusion is kind of the deeper root that greed and hatred come out of. That's that unclarity. That's really what, what that not seeing how things actually are, that's what drives all that. Thank you, Deb. All right, anyone else? I know, Sally, you had your hand up, and now you don't. Are you okay? Okay, I'll go ahead. Okay. Thank you, Tim. Um, who would have thought greed could be so interesting, actually? <laughs> um, I'm starting to think greed is sort of a subjective thing, uh, that my greed is is what I need to look at, and it's not the same as somebody else's greed, right? Mm-hmm. So, That's right. I'm starting to see that, but I'm also facing the culture we live in as being, as being pretty greedy that we, we, we've grown up with, with greed as sort of a, a, a common thing, you know, to, to, to be competitive, get the biggest piece, uh, you know, like stand out, all that kind of stuff, you know, it seems to be part of our culture. So yeah, I'm just, Wondering how we navigate greed as a cultural thing and and our personal greed. Yeah, that's a great great observation because yeah, there is the, the very personal way that you were brought up with your family and how you learned your own personal patterns of of greed in relationship to that. But there's also very much the cultural, you know, conditioning, cultural tendencies. I mean, we. The U.S. what uses, we look at the, the amount of resources of the world we use, it's like there's this huge amount that we use and the next country is like much less. And that's just part of our, our culture. So the way I look at it for myself is kind of the point of, of engagement is really around the, the personal experience of that. Because that's where I have the most influence of being able to see how it shows up for myself. And it's also helpful to notice, well, this way I'm exploring it personally, this personal manifestation of greed, oh, I see it in all these other people. So I can see kind of the momentum of my, of my, the people I'm around, the culture I'm on. And then that becomes a different way of how do I, how do I counteract it? How do I work with it? You know, versus the, the, the very personal one that maybe only you, only I feel greedy about this one thing, you know, versus, okay, we all kind of have that collective quality. And so this interesting back and forth between the, the personal, personal understanding and how do you actually meet the rest of the world? And we see, you know, we see this a lot of examples in, in hatred, for example, around racism, around any way of discrimination. There's this cultural force behind it that, you know, causes tremendous damage. And we can see that with greed too. There's actually a lot of damage that we cause ourselves. We cause the world. We cause you know, look, look at global warming is a manifestation of, of that, that greed, that lack. And so just noticing both, you know, that how you experience it directly yourself, that's the point of contact that you can explore. But your discernment, your wisdom notices, oh, this is part of a bigger picture. And that helps you inform how you make choices in the world. Thank you, Sally. 
All right. Thank you all for your engagement. And next week we'll have a, I'll do a recap talk or some reframing of this talk for like about 20 minutes. Then we'll have some small group discussions where you can talk about your greed with each other. <laughs> something to look forward, something to be greedy about, looking forward to it. All right. Have a wonderful evening and a wonderful safe fourth. <laughs>